Chapter Fourteen of Sir Titus Salt, Baronet, His Life and Its Lessons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Sir Titus Salt, Baronet, His Life and Its Lessons by Robert Belgarni. Chapter Fourteen. To comfort and to bless, to find a balm for woe, To tend the lone and fatherless is angels' work below, The captive to release, to God the lost to bring, To teach the way of life and peace is a most Christ-like thing. How? The state of Mr. Salt's health in Parliament became so enfeebled That on the eve of the session of 1861, he resigned his seat. In a letter which he addressed to his constituents, the reason for taking this step was given in the following words. I find, after two years of experience, that I have not sufficient stamina to bear up under the fatigues and late hours incident to parliamentary life. The electors had, therefore, no option but to receive back the trust they had committed to his hands. Mr. W. E. Forster succeeded to the seat, which he has since retained, and has become distinguished as a statesman by several important measures which, under his auspices, have passed into law. We have, therefore, in this chapter, to consider him in his home at Methley. From this period may be dated many of those acts of benevolence that have made his name conspicuous among his fellow-men. It would be out of place, were it possible, to reveal to the world his various gifts to religion and philanthropy during his lifetime. It is believed they amounted to about a quarter of a million sterling. But who can trace the various channels through which his bounty flowed, the hearts that it gladdened, the institutions which it enriched, the various schools and churches it benefited? Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Just to illustrate the generosity of his heart and hand, a few facts which came under our personal cognizance may be here recorded. Had Mr. Salt not been a Christian, he would doubtless have been benevolent. This was natural to him. But the great spiritual change already referred to touched the deeper springs of his being, and gave an impulse to his generosity not heretofore manifest. The letter given in the previous chapter clearly indicates that he felt the responsibility of his wealth, and cherished the conviction that a portion of it ought to be consecrated to the glory of God and the good of his fellow man, a conviction which seemed to become stronger as he advanced in years. The congregational church nearest his residence was at Castleford, a town situated about four miles from Methley, and noted for its glass-bottle manufacture. The congregation there consisted chiefly of workpeople, who met for worship in a public hall. Mr. Salt felt it his duty from the first to identify himself with this little Christian community, and to aid them in every possible way. From the time of his coming amongst them, their strength increased, their hearts were cheered, so that steps were soon taken to erect in the town a suitable church, towards which he and his family largely contributed. 
the foundation stone was laid by mr salt on which occasion many guests were invited to metley we well remember how sensitively he shrunk from the duty imposed upon him at the public ceremony and the apparent relief he experienced when it was over the church was opened by the rev james parson men of york whose fame as a preacher stood preeminent of the congregation at castleford the rev henry simon was the respected pastor until he received a call to a larger sphere of work in london mr salt was no sectarian bigot who could see nothing good outside the pale of his own communion he was ever ready to encourage other christian denominations in their work of faith and labor of love and the liberality of his heart was not only manifested in gifts of money but in other christian acts that indicated a spirit of charity towards those who though differing from him in forms of government were one in christ as an instance of this spirit he very regularly on sunday evenings attended methley parish church which was in walking distance of his residence with the rector the honourable and reverend p y seville son of the late lord mexborough he was on intimate terms of friendship and was a liberal contributor to the parochial charities perhaps it was from this circumstance that some persons at the time concluded that mr salt's principles as a nonconformist were changed but it was not so it was rather that the higher principles of religion were exemplified especially that of christian love without which all mere forms of worship and ecclesiastical polity are vain that he held his convictions firmly at this time was strikingly manifested in a letter which he wrote to the bishop of the diocese who had applied to him for aid in a church-building scheme thinking that the bishop might have imagined he had become a member of the establishment mr salt courteously replied i am a nonconformist from conviction and attached to a congregational body nevertheless i regard it as a duty and a privilege to cooperate with christians of all evangelical denominations in furtherance of christian work would that such a spirit might universally prevail whether in this particular instance he forwarded a subscription or not we do not know but to the fund for renovating york minster he sent a handsome contribution through mr lehman m p and when the new episcopalian church at lightcliffe was erected he presented an elaborately carved stone pulpit as an expression of his catholicity another instance in his liberality about this time was the gift of five thousand pounds to the sailors orphanage at hull which on his part was quite spontaneous it happened that one evening at methley we were conversing together about a recent visit of these orphans to scarborough of the importance of the institution the necessity for its enlargement and the claims which sailors orphans had on the sympathy of manufacturers generally whose goods are exported to foreign lands he said nothing at the time in reference to these observations but evidently he had laid them to heart for some time after he said i should like to know more about that orphanage you were telling me of as he then proposed being in scarborough in the following week it was agreed that the treasurer and secretary should be invited to meet him there and submit to him the plans for the enlargement of the building on the day appointed 
These gentlemen waited on Mr. Salt with their plans, which, after careful examination, he quietly returned, simply remarking: "I'll come over and see the place." As they retired, somewhat disappointed with the result of their interview, we followed them to the door, and ventured to hint that all would be right. But it may be preferable to give an extract from the minutes of the institution: "The secretary, Mr. John Wright, met Mr. Salt at the railway station at Hull, and thence proceeded to the Orphan House, where they were joined by the deputy chairman. Having shewn Mr. Salt over the whole establishment, they visited the Sailors' Institution, and then adjourned to the Station Hotel. Before leaving for Scarborough, Mr. Salt offered to place a cheque of five thousand pounds at the disposal of the committee, on condition that the present premises be enlarged so as to provide accommodation for one hundred sailors' orphans, and that a suitable school for two hundred children be erected, one hundred of whom should be clothed and educated gratuitously. Whereupon it was resolved unanimously that the munificent offer of Titus Salt, Esquire, to place at the disposal of the committee the sum of five thousand pounds for the enlargement of the orphanage home and a general extension of the society's operations upon the conditions mentioned in the foregoing minutes, be and is hereby most thankfully accepted. Thus the institution was lifted into a higher position of importance in the eyes of businessmen, and has since reached a point of prosperity not at first anticipated. For at the present date the sum of £21,258 has been expended on the premises, which have accommodation for 220 orphans. At the inauguration of this orphanage, Mr. Salt presided, when the mayor and sheriff of Hull were present, together with the laity and clergy of the town. The chairman's words were, of course, few, and in them no allusion was made to himself. The treasurer said, This was a new building for them, but the institution had existed for many years, and they had been doing something in the way of benevolence but he was sorry to say that it was on a limited scale. They had now thrown off this limited liability and were determined to go to the unlimited. The company had taken into partnership a junior. He was a gentleman of great credit, and if his means were half as large as his heart, there would not be many orphans in Hull uncared for. Another speaker said, Mr. Salt was very much grieved when he saw the announcement of his liberality in the newspapers, but he, the speaker, had told him that it was a very difficult matter to keep it a secret, for the donor was like one of those men whom the poet described when he spoke of doing good by stealth and blushing to find it fame. Nor was this the only instance of his liberality towards that institution. In 1869, he wrote to the secretary, saying, There must be a great effort made to increase the annual subscription so that you may fill the building. I shall increase mine to fifty pounds per annum. He also contributed two hundred fifty pounds to provide some carved work to ornament the front of the building. It consists of a group of five figures, the center one being charity, with two orphan children on either side while the accessories of the group associated with the maritime interests in the town. The sculptor was Mr. Keyworth, Jr., of London, a native of Hull. With a view to promote the proficiency of boys in swimming, a silver medal, to be annually awarded to the best swimmer, was also given. 
as an evidence of the gratitude of the committee in hull for all these generous gifts a beautiful bust of mr salt stands in the entrance hall of the building his full-length portrait has been placed in the committee room and every year his birthday is kept by the orphan children as the founder's day in eighteen sixty two was celebrated the bicentenary of english nonconformity which commemorates the memorable event of sixteen sixty two when two thousand learned and godly ministers of the established church gave up their living and social status for conscience sake as the congregationalists in this country regard those noble men as their ecclesiastical forefathers the celebration assumed many practical forms such as the erection of churches and schools in various parts of the kingdom but it was thought by many that a public hall should be erected in some central part of the metropolis in such a hall the different societies affiliated with the congregational denomination might be localized the portraits of its eminent men preserved ecclesiastical records kept a library of puritan literature opened and the annual assembly of the congregational union held this memorial hall was erected at a cost of seventy five thousand pounds and is situated in farringdon street on the site of the ancient fleet prison where many godly men were incarcerated for their adhesion to nonconformity and now what had mr salt to do with this the reader will have seen how his own early life had been passed amid scenes sacred to the memory of some of these ejected ministers no wonder then that at this bicentenary commemoration his warm sympathy was excited towards the building fund he contributed five thousand pounds similar sums were given by other noble men such as mr s morley and mr j crosley whose example in many good works mr salt when not the leader himself was always ready to follow two years before his death he visited the memorial hall and expressed himself highly pleased with the undertaking which after years of unavoidable delay had recently been brought to a most successful consummation scarborough had long been a favorite place of resort to mr salt and his family his parents had brought them there as a boy and seldom had a year passed since then without the accustomed visit being paid we had heard him describe the long journey in those coaching days with his parents and their sojourn in merchant's row which was then considered the most attractive part of the town they attended divine worship in the old meeting-house now eastborough church and enjoyed the ministry of the venerable samuel bottomley this sanctuary was of presbyterian origin and has an interesting history going back to the dark days of persecution an old family bible is still preserved by the present minister the rev e l adams which bears the mark of a sword thrust it is said that the owner having concealed himself in a barn owed his life to the circumstance that a dragoon in probing the straw imagined he had pierced a concealed fugitive mr salt's early visits to scarborough were therefore associated with the old meeting-house in that place but when the town outgrew its ancient boundaries this building became difficult of access to summer visitors it is said the late dr winter hamilton on one occasion had some difficulty in finding st sepulchre street in which locality the meeting-house was situated on coming out of it one morning after service he observed to a friend they call this sepulchre street chapel what a place to bury strangers in 
when therefore steps were taken to erect the bar church in the western part of the town mr salt gave it his liberal support but in the course of a few years this church became insufficient to accommodate the summer visitors so that a public hall had also to be provided as a chapel of ease during four successive seasons it seemed an imperative duty to erect a permanent edifice to meet the necessities of the case a site was therefore selected on south cliff at a cost of twelve hundred fifty pounds which was soon afterwards increased to fifteen hundred pounds on which it was resolved to build a church as early as practicable mr salt from his frequent visits to scarborough had become familiar with the above facts what was our surprise one day when meeting him casually in the street he said i hear you have purchased a site for a new church that's right then putting his arm in ours and walking a few yards he quietly said i should like to have the honor of paying for that site this generous offer was so unexpected that though the time for further action seemed yet uncertain it came as a voice from heaven saying arise and build when a building committee was formed mr salt was asked to become its chairman but instead of giving an immediate answer he said i'll think about it little did we know at the time what to him the acceptance of the post meant or even what his thinking about it involved for when on the following day he returned in answering the affirmative it was in these words your proposal has cost me a night's sleep but i think i must obey the call of duty does not this circumstance reveal another feature of his character not feeling but duty was the rule of all his actions would not some men have contented themselves with a handsome subscription and regarded it as their proxy in such a work it was not so with him he held his personal influence as a trust as well as his wealth his time as well as his property and all these gifts he was willing to consecrate to god that his heart was in the erection of this church is abundantly evident his part as chairman of the committee was one not only of honor but hard work of which many minutes carefully kept by mr g b dobson testify frequently he made a special journey to scarborough to attend the committee meetings returning by the last train to methley which he could not reach till midnight the foundation stone was laid on his sixty-first birthday by mrs salt and in the following summer the church was opened for divine worship when the reverends dr mellor and newman hall preached the cost was about sixteen thousand pounds towards which mr salt gave inclusive of the site twenty five hundred the committee desired that the large stained window in the western transept should be a memorial of the chairman but he with characteristic modesty declined the honor the congregational churches of scarborough were not the only recipients of his liberality the baptists and primitive methodists shared it to the royal sea-bathing infirmary the dispensary the mechanics institute the cottage hospital he was a generous benefactor when disaster befell the seafaring portion of the community he was prompt to aid them it was connection with them that a touching incident once occurred at methley of which we were cognizant the leeds mercury of one morning contained an account of the upsetting of a boat on the previous day at scarborough when two fishermen were drowned 
At family prayer, the widows and orphans were especially commended to God. When we arose from our knees, he seemed much affected, and taking a ten-pound note from his pocket-book, he said, Give them that. The gift following the prayer reminded us of one of old, to whom the angel said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard, and thy alms are had in remembrance before God. It was frequently our privilege to be one of his many almoners, though we cannot recall a single instance where pecuniary aid was directly solicited of him. It was the spontaneity of his gifts that invested them with peculiar value. He had only to be informed of any case of real distress or a worthy institution struggling with difficulties, then his heart was moved and his purse opened. Those who have seen his pocket-book so often brought out, when his bounty was to be dispensed, might almost wish it had a voice, for it would reveal the heart of the owner by deeds which in words cannot be expressed. The supply of bank-notes which it contained we sometimes called his tracts, and which, in their distribution, carried blessings both to the bodies and souls of men. May we not add the tract depository always seemed like the oil crews at Zarephath, never exhausted. But let us glance at his domestic and social life at Methley. The younger children were then about him, and in their pastimes he found relaxation and delight. When little children were sojourning there, he loved to become young again and to take part in their childish sports. On one occasion we remember him heading a juvenile procession in the hall, and marching to the unmelodious sound of the fire-irons, he being chief musician and leader. When Christmas came, and both children and grandchildren met under the parental roof, his domestic felicity was complete. And when the yule-log blazed and crackled on the capacious hearth, which seemed to have been originally constructed for the purpose, and the old baronial hall became familiar once more with scenes of festive mirth, the echoes of olden times were revived. Methley at that time was seldom without guests, and its hospitalities were dispensed with characteristic generosity. The late Earl of Mexborough, who then resided on the estate, was occasionally invited to join the social circle, which he enlivened by his personal reminiscences of the home where his own life had been passed. Among the guests there once happened to be a distinguished group, consisting of Owen Jones, Digby Wyatt, and Sir Charles Paisley. In the course of the evening, the conversation turned upon art and literature, in which several of the guests took part. The host was a silent but not uninterested listener. The flashes of his silence were sometimes equivalent to an articulate speech in conversation. The last-named gentleman, turning to the host, said, Mr. Salt, what books have you been reading lately? Alpaca, was the quiet reply. Then, after a short pause, he added, If you had four or five thousand people to provide for every day, you would not have much time for reading. The late Sir William Fairbairn and other old friends were once invited to dine with him. Unfortunately, he was laid up in bed by a severe attack of gout. What was to be done in the circumstances? He would not permit the invitations to be recalled, nor be entirely deprived of the society of his guests. He, therefore, 
held a levy in his bedroom, and, though suffering considerable pain, his original intentions were carried out as far as practicable. It is not unworthy of note that about this period Mr. Salt abandoned the habit of smoking to which he had been accustomed for many years. He was known to keep choice cigars so that his guests addicted to smoking were fortunately situated for the gratification of their tastes. But they found that a sudden and unexpected change had come over their host. We mention the circumstance in showing the self-mastery of Mr. Salt. Perhaps some persons would have gradually emancipated themselves from a long-standing habit, but he acted with decision. Does he not, in this, present an example worthy of imitation? We know not the motives that induced him to take this sudden resolution, but of this we are confident. He kept it throughout his subsequent life. He was not, however, intolerant to smokers, though he had a characteristic way of conveying a broad hint on the subject. When the cigar box was handed to them, a few tracts on anti-smoking were usually placed on the top. Sometimes he offered his friends a bundle of what seemed to them fine Havanas, when, lo, on closer examination, it proved to be a box of chocolate. Thus the random tricks of the schoolboy would sometimes reappear in the man. Another instance of a similar kind may be mentioned. He had brought a party of friends to salt air on a fair day, and as he passed with them along the street, a gypsy, not knowing who he was, offered him for sale her brooms. Imagine her bewilderment when he bought the whole stock. To each of his friends he presented one, and distributed the remainder amongst the children who were wonderingly looking on. Why do we mention these trifling incidents? just that the man may be seen in his true character. How few saw him on all sides. Tender as a woman, manliness and meekness in him were so allied that they who judged him by his strength or weakness saw but a single side. What were his outdoor pursuits at Methley? He was not a great horseman nor a sportsman. Occasionally he would ride out with his children, his chief delight was in the cultivation of fruits and flowers. On his coming to Methley, the vineries and greenhouses were rebuilt and supplied with the most modern means of heating and ventilation. With the botanical names of various plants he had but a slight acquaintance, but their form and color filled him with exquisite pleasure. The grape and pineapple were his favorite fruits until after his return to Crow Nest where the cultivation of the banana, or breadfruit, took precedence. Yet all these were cultivated not alone for his personal gratification, but for that of friends, and especially invalids, to whom a basket of beautiful flowers or fruits from Methley was always a welcome boon. For his bounty there was no winter in it, an autumn and twas that grew the more by reaping. End of chapter 14